ReachMD now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Dr. Smat Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Yes, you are, and I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Welcome. We have a great show for you today, the best ever. Today, we're sorting out health facts. All right, I know most of all of you already have the facts, or do you? Or are you as unsure as your patients when they ask you questions like, Hey, Doc, is coffee bad for me? Is yoga good for me? Should I take vitamins? Should I take vitamin-infused coffee during yoga class, Dr. Greenberg? I have no idea, patient Matt, but today's guest does. We'll have Dr. Sanjeev Chopra, faculty dean of continuing medical education at Harvard and author of the book, Dr. Chopra Says, Medical Facts and Myths Everyone Should Know. Plus, we'll find out more about IBM's Watson, the computer that's new too much. Watson made headlines last month when it beat out two human champion competitors on the game Jeopardy. And now Watson's got its all-seeing eye on medicine, learning how to keep help doctors treat patients better. We caught up with Dr. Herbert Chase, professor of medicine and biomedical informatics at Columbia University, who's working with IBM on this project. When is Watson going to be putting on the white coat and join your practice? We'll find out. Yes, facts, myths, and computer overlords. All this and more coming up on Second Opinion Live. All right. Let's get this party going with some curious headlines. And this one takes the term ice cream social to a whole new level. A new ice cream formulation is making waves in London. Of course, it's London. Why are we mentioning it? Because it's made from human breast milk. Oh, that is gross. I think I just gagged. Oh, God. (laughs) But how come we don't have any today? We had donuts (laughs) and we talked about those. (laughs) Well, that's uh, better left up to our producer. Breast milk ice cream. (laughs) It is new. It is hot. It's what's in, if you're British. And it's heavily fortified with antibodies and growth factors. One scoop of this new vanilla and lemon zesty flavor, which they're calling Baby Gaga, by the way, will set you back 14 pounds, or roughly $22. Now, unless you're lactating, in which case the ice cream producers will pay you $24 for 10 ounces of breast milk. How very quid pro quo. It's still gross, man. (laughs) Breast milk is becoming a hot topic in the States, too. Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston recently became one of the first hospitals in the country to set a policy for using breast milk from a milk bank for infants in the NICU in cases where mothers can't breastfeed herself due to illness, or any other reason. They used to give soy or cow's milk-based formulas to these infants, but it turns out that infants who get breast milk go home from the hospital faster. Give them breast milk ice cream. Well, absolutely. And you know, there's a problem with this recent claim to fame for breast milk, and I'm not talking about some expensive new ice cream flavor that manages both to disgust and intrigue me at the same time, I'll be completely honest. (laughs) The bigger (laughs) issue here is that mothers who can't breastfeed are increasingly turning to the internet to purchase breast milk from unscreened donors, meaning there's increased risk of transmitting hepatitis B and some other really nasty stuff to infants. I mean, do you see what I just did right there, Michael? I I just made it real. Yeah, how about a hot fudge sundae with Baby Gaga? That's making it very real. Yeah, well, here's another reality check for you on Baby Gaga ice cream. Despite selling out of the product within one week of release, oh, those Brits are so cool, British officials have since confiscated the ice cream following complaints of selling edibles made from other people's bodily fluids. As though cows or goat's milk is that much more hygienic. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but the British Food Standards Agency is expected to weigh in soon. How cool they are in Linda. God save the queen. I'm sure we'll all be waiting with bated breath or maybe in this case, bated breast milk. <laughs> oh, that was terrible. <laughs> that was awful. So moving on to something even worse. 
It may come as no surprise to some of our listeners, and certainly not to me sitting down wind from my co-host here, but a new study says that humans are the smelliest creatures on the planet, at least to mosquitoes. An article coming out in the journal Trends in Parasitology, very popular article, reports that people have a particular way of sweating that makes us hot properties to mosquitoes, several of which carry malaria and yellow fever, by the way. And there I go making it real again. Who pays for this research? Well, your smell is unreal, Matt. You're probably (laughs) the only guy who could still get mosquito bites in the dead of winter. Seriously, though, we've always known that mosquitoes hone in on the smells of sweat. But why ours more than other animals? Well, it turns out that all other animals have fewer sweat glands than we do. Take dogs. They only sweat from their paws and let panting do the rest of the cooling for them. But we've got sweat glands all over us. And how about Italian ice is made from sweat? A sweat Italian ice, I guess you could call it. And the difference is our skin, too. I mean, this article adds that human skin has molecular compounds that are just smellier to mosquitoes, meaning that even in a room full of stinky cows, Michael Greenberg would still be the pick of the litter to a floating disease vector like a mosquito. Now, how does that make you feel, Michael? Very honored, but it might be more than skin, Matt. Researchers are also trying to learn more about our individual differences in skin microbes, which might explain why some of us, like Matt, are mosquito magnets. As opposed to chick magnets like Michael. You know, there are even preferences driven differences among mosquito types. So, for example, mosquitoes carrying dengue and yellow fever more frequently bite men than women, while children are bitten less often than adults by malaria-carrying mosquitoes. So what's the upside to being smellier? It could be turned into repellent. You repel me, Matt. Researchers are now looking at ways to intensify the human smell signature to mosquitoes such that we become repulsive, like too much cheap cologne, right, Matt? Oh, touche. Or too much way expensive French stuff, right, Michael? Either way... We're pretty repulsive, I think. We are, both of us. us. (laughs) All right, enough ripping on our respective mosquito colognes. Let's move on and talk technology. And there's one story getting all the attention from that sector these days. It's safe to say most of our listeners have heard about the IBM supercomputer called Watson, which recently pummeled two all-time human champions on the game show Jeopardy. Watson possesses language comprehension and the ability to sift through vast amounts of data and narrow down to the right one answer. Well, guess what? That ability comes in handy for narrowing a differential diagnosis, too. So Watson's headed for medicine next. Earlier this week, Matt talked with Dr. Herbert Chase, professor of clinical medicine and biomedical informatics at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Chase is working with IBM to enroll Watson into medical school. Dr. Chase, it is great to have you with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Why don't you start by telling us about your role in working with IBM to bring Watson to medicine? Well, Columbia University has been participating for about a year, and there are several aspects of our participation. First and foremost, I and some of my hardworking Columbia medical students here were actually analyzing how well Watson answers medical questions. Uh, We have a couple thousand questions, much like Jeopardy questions, uh, but they're medical, and Watson answers them, um, has an output of between five and ten answers, and then I and the medical students literally grind through seeing how well Watson does. Um, At a sort of higher level, uh, we're working with the team to develop an overall strategy. Where where can Watson play a role? I think first and foremost, if Watson can answer doctors' questions, that's a a tremendous advance. Um, Any physician listening to this broadcast will be well aware, as have studies have shown for years, that at the end of the day, uh, we just simply can't answer all the questions that have come up. Even if we were given time, even if we had the time to look up the answers, we'd still have difficulty. So if Watson can provide 
uh, rapid answers to our medical questions, much like it did on Jeopardy, then I think that would be a tremendous step forward. Um, we're also looking at other uh, uses of Watson, and the two most obvious, of course, are aiding in diagnosis and finding the appropriate treatment for an individual patient. Uh, diagnosis delay or misdiagnosis is a major cause of medical error, and Watson can be given clues, much like we saw in Jeopardy, that can uh, prime Watson to generate a differential diagnosis, which opens the mind of the physician, sees many more uh, possibilities than he or she might have thought of on his own, uh, and that should aid in um, a diagnosis maybe shortening the time it takes to make the correct diagnosis. Why don't we uh, focus for a second on that diagnostic and treatment rec element of Watson. Now, do you think that in practice, Watson will have to be programmed with rationales to help back up any clinical or diagnostic recommendations? I think that the rationale, that's a really interesting question. The rationale as such would be provided by the evidence that Watson would have looked at in order to come up with its uh, differential diagnosis. So, for example, let's say a patient had several symptoms, you know, rash, fever, joint pain, and Watson uh, decided that there were five or six possibilities, you know, lupus or Lyme disease, uh, along with those possibilities would be a link to where that information was found and what that information was. So to that extent, the rationale would be provided in the snippet, if you will, or even the paragraph that was returned to the physician in support of that particular diagnosis. Yeah, because I think about current programs that do exist that help physicians generate a higher or a longer differential diagnostic list. In all those cases, the physician still feels like he or she is in ownership of that differential. But in this case, you have something with the potential to be able to provide a number of ideas that might not have even occurred to a physician, and it will be coming from an extraneous source. So I envision potential trust issues to start if the physician isn't consulting their own PDA or looking up their own textbook in which they feel like they're owning their own differential. We've worried about that. We've discussed it. I think what might happen, though, is that the differential from Watson, which will be far more complete usually, uh, it will make sense to the physician. The physician will say, oh, my God, you're right. You know, I remember learning in medical school that that was a cause of arthritis, fever, and whatever else, that it won't be out of the blue. And uh, and then also the physician has the option to uh, go track down where that information came from. Uh, there's a lot of work showing that a major reason for missed or delayed diagnosis is an incomplete differential diagnosis. Uh, and I'm, 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 I'm imagining that the physicians will embrace the expanded differential diagnosis, you know, rather than feel that they no longer own it. Uh, we all in medicine know that it's been, for many years, it's been humanly impossible to master the uh, amount of information needed to be able to practice medicine at the highest level. Think of all the possible diagnoses, especially the unlikely ones. And um, I'm hoping that the list will simply prompt the physician, and then the physician will say, all right, well, that's actually a plausible uh, thought, and I'll go track that down. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think you're right. The physician has to own it by clicking and saying, well, no, I mean, this can't be Lyme disease because the person's been, you know, in Antarctica for the last 
three years and isn't in Lyme territory. <laughs> Absolutely. I can't argue with that logic, but <laughs> I should still put it out there. You know, from the moment that Watson entered, even entered the conversation of medical utility, I think the docs and assistants everywhere started predicting this proverbial Ides of March for their own practice, at least their own specialty. Now, do you think that there's any merit at all to the fear that Watson could replace certain types of practice? And, of course, one of the things that comes into mind for down the road would be, for instance, radiology. No, I well, I have to think about that. In Watson, in my view, informs the physician of everything that the physician needs to think about. At the end of the day, the patient is in control of the diagnosis workup and the treatment options. And the physician's role, of course, is to fully inform the patient as to all the risks and all the benefits of different options. Uh, Watson's role, as I see it, is to inform the physician of all the options and the risk-benefit uh, and a full differential diagnosis. But at the end of the day, it's still the physician and will always be the physician and the patient uh, having a discussion about how to proceed. I don't see a machine actually having the final say in anything because uh, even a patient, you know, identical twins with exactly the same disease are maybe treated differently because of individual uh, preferences, uh, individual circumstances, and only that can that can only come about. The tailoring of that um, treatment can only come about between from a conversation between the patient and the doctor. Watson can bring the options to the doctor, but the patient and the doctor at the end of the day are going to make that decision. I'm not sure that answered your question. Actually, I think it helps put thousands of minds at ease, to be honest with you. But, uh, you know, before we go, we got one minute left. Uh, what do you think are the major challenges in bringing Watson to practice at this point? It depends on what capacity. I And we're ready to actually start testing. And I think if you hand someone a phone-like device or an iPad and say, in the privacy of your own being, do you have a question that you'd like answered, speak the question in to, and then see what the return is, that uh, is uh, doable at, at this moment. Again, as I mentioned in the beginning of this conversation, one of my roles is to uh, figure out uh, how to get Watson's accuracy, so to speak, up uh, to the highest level. Um, I think in terms of uh, assisting in diagnoses, that is challenging. For example, we're wondering, where does it fit into workflow? If you're my patient and I'm sitting there, how are you going to feel if I mumble something into Watson because you've just told me five or six symptoms which seem to be unrelated and I want to see what Watson thinks? For all we know, and that's one of Columbia's roles, is to actually test what we call usability. We actually want to know the answer to how patients and the physicians feel about using the technology. For all we know, uh, the patient and the physician will feel very comfortable having this inanimate uh, third party in the room where they both talk to Watson. We have no idea, uh, of course, whether that will be the case. So we we have... we're seriously focused on how an artifact alters the doctor, has the potential of altering the doctor-patient relationship. And, of course, uh, that should be minimized uh, to, you know, as best it can be. Well, Dr. Chase, it sounds like Watson's evolving by the minute. We're definitely going to have to have you back on the channel. I hope you don't mind us knocking on your door soon. Not at all. I, I, mean, I actually can't wait to hand the gizmo to my medical students and the residents and just say, ask away. <laughs> and, and let, you know, just mumble in the clues and see what you get. Um, I 
have been astounded, honestly, by how good the current machine is at coming up with a accurate differential diagnosis on some incredibly difficult diseases that I know I certainly wouldn't have thought of if they were out of my own specialty. Well, Dr. Chase, I'd be happy to beta test it for you. <laughs> this, has been Dr. you. Uh, this has been Dr. Chase, Professor of Clinical Medicine in Biomedical Informatics at Columbia University. Thanks again, Dr. Chase. Thank you very much. Uh, Matt, I don't know how to tell you this, but I've just gotten a call from the top brass at ReachMD. We've been replaced by Watson. They fired us. Oh. They, Watson's going to do the show from now on, much smarter than we are. Well, it's about time. Wow, brilliant. That's amazing. Wonderful show. I wonder if there's a dermatology version. Rub steroids on everything, you know? That's the answer from Watson on everything. (laughs) (laughs) So you've just broken down your specialty, basically. Yep. I'm hearing. All right. Well, by the way, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Great to have you with us. It is. And today's interview is going to examine one of the most fundamental questions in clinical practice. How do you make decisions about what's best for your patients when there's often so much conflicting information out there? Patients come in with questions. Do they leave your office with good answers? I don't know, but our guest does. Dr. Sanjeev Chopra has dedicated an enormous amount of time to helping us out here. He sifted through archives of information to find out the latest, most definitive research on what we should be eating, what kinds of vitamins and supplements we should be taking, what kinds of health risks we should be working to avoid. He's author of the book, Dr. Chopra Says, Medical Facts and Myths Everyone Should Know, and he's faculty dean of continuing education at Harvard Medical School. Sanjeev, welcome to our show. Yeah, delighted to be on your show. Awesome. All right, I got a question. There's like 25 billion facts out here that we want to know. How did you choose which questions to tackle for your book? Yeah, we actually, uh, as you know, I wrote this uh, book with a friend and colleague, uh, Alan Lotwin, who's a cardiologist and a brilliant man. And uh, with the writer, David Fisher, David has written 56 or so books with uh, other authors. And we sat down and we compiled a list and we actually initially had a list of about 100 topics and then whittled it down to 38, talked to friends and colleagues. Uh, At cocktail parties, I would simply pose the question, do you take vitamins, do you drink coffee, and see the kind of interest it peaked. And then based on that, we decided to have these 38 chapters. Well, how did you sift through that much cloudy information to arrive at solid answers. I mean, that's something that sounds like only a Watson-like program would even take on. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, Well, it took a lot of hard work. Uh, We spent three years doing this. And at one point, it was not moving as fast as I wanted. I have a saying, impatience is a virtue. So I actually prodded my two colleagues that we would need to have three-day retreats and work from morning till the late hours, and uh, make lots of progress. So we reviewed the literature. As you know, in my position as faculty dean for continuing education at Harvard Med School, I'm privileged to direct about 10 postgraduate courses throughout the country. So I'm constantly exposed as I'm moderating a session or listening to a great colleague from UCLA or Johns Hopkins or from Harvard Medical School to all the latest information. So I would take furious notes, look at the syllabus, talk to them. And my colleague, Alan Lotwin, in his many travels, was doing the same. We would send the information to David Fisher, the writer. I would connect with the original author, say, the chapter on coffee. And Art Klatsky, a physician from California, published the first paper that coffee drinkers have low levels of liver enzymes. 
and now we know so much about what coffee does to the liver. So actually, I would connect with Dr. Klatsky and say I'm writing a book, and would you be willing to speak to the author, the writer, for about 10, 15 minutes? And invariably, they would say yes, and they would actually speak for 45 minutes or an hour, and we'd get a wonderful anecdote. If it took you three and a half or three plus years, right. does that mean that everything in the first couple of years had to be thrown out because it was rendered moot by the time you published it? You know what? A lot of it had to be refurbished. Uh, studies on coffee kept coming and talking about its benefits in liver disease, type 2 diabetes, Parkinsonism, gout. So we would simply add the study. And uh, most of the way we've written the book is if there's one study, we say there's one study. You know, this may or may not turn out to be true. Uh, on green tea, for example, the evidence really isn't there that it's healthy. That doesn't mean it's not healthy. And I have a saying, as I'm sure you do, that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So we did have to modify many different statements we made or uh, actually delete some of the stuff. Uh, this is, as you know, every single day we're barraged with uh, a mountain of information and even misinformation in the press and on TV. Uh, you know, you hear pomegranate juice is good, then you're not so sure. Then you look it up, and there are actually six good studies. So it, it's a never-ending uh, battle to get all this information down. All right. Well, you know, on legal shows, they say you open the door. So you open the door on coffee. Yeah. So let's talk for a minute about the motor that drives most doctors. That's coffee. You know, there's a long, convoluted love-hate history with coffee in medical research. But we think the general sentiment these days is that coffee is basically bad for you, while tea is basically good. What does the evidence really say on that? Yeah, so the, actually, coffee appears to be a miracle drug. And in terms of liver disease, there are 1 billion people in the world with chronic liver disease. There are 450 million with chronic hepatitis B, about 170 with chronic hepatitis C, add up alcoholic liver disease, hemochromatosis, now the dominant liver disease in our country, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, a billion people in the world. And multiple studies over 20 years have shown that coffee drinkers have low levels of liver enzymes, they have less hepatic fibrosis or scarring, that two cups of regular coffee a day decreases hospitalization and mortality from chronic liver disease by 50%, that two cups decreases the chance of developing primary liver cancer, which is now the fourth leading cause of cancer mortality in the world, by an astounding 43%. And there are mechanistic explanations None of the studies have been sponsored by Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts. There are dose-dependent studies. You know, for, for decades, we've been mystified. How come some of our colleagues and the public, uh, people in the public, drink a pint of whiskey a day for 20 or 30 years, and then only 20, 30% become cirrhotic? What happened to the rest? Well, Art Klatsky published a study, 123,000 patients. And if one drinks one cup of coffee a day, it reduces the chance of alcoholic cirrhosis by 20%, two cups by 40%, and four cups by 80%. So dose-dependent effect. And, you know, I attend on the liver service at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. <clears throat> we have the sickest patients with end-stage liver disease. We have 20 patients on the service. We have six consults. For the last five years, I've been telling the house staff and fellows, 
ask every patient about coffee and tea. And day after day when I went for rounds and I'd sit down, they'd go, Dr. Chopra, none of the patients drink coffee. And one Friday I sit down and we had five admissions and they said, we finally have a patient and he drinks coffee. And very proudly they said he drinks regular coffee, he drinks four cups, and we even asked him the size of the cup and he pointed to a paper cup at the side of his table. So I said, you know, I'll take my own history. And I was introduced and I took a detailed history. At the end I said, tell me about tea and coffee. He said, Doc, I don't like tea, I love coffee. I said, what do you drink? He said, regular, of course, four cups. And he pointed to a cup. And I asked a question, how long have you been drinking coffee? And the answer was, since my liver transplant. So in fact, you know, he had end-stage liver disease, got a transplant, and it was only after the transplant that he started to drink coffee. Well, he ought to start drinking Irish coffee. There's a combination. For yeah, him. that's a good combination. <laughs> how about coffee and bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome? Yeah, so that's a very good point. So I always tell my patients, if you have uh, irritable bowel syndrome, you have horrific heartburn or GERD, uh, clearly if you're pregnant, uh, if you are prone to tremors and insomnia, then you should be very cautious and avoid coffee. Or if you're going to take coffee and you have difficulty sleeping, then don't drink coffee after 4 or 5 o'clock. I happen to love coffee, and I drink 3 or 4 cups of coffee a day, but if I drink after 5 o'clock, I'll be up till 3 in the morning. Can I write my coffee off as a medical expense now? <laughs> or you at least get reimbursed? You, reimbursed. Yeah. you remember Voltaire, the French philosopher, lived to the age of uh, 83 years at a time when life expectancy was 40 years. And it is reputed that he drank 50 to 72 cups of coffee a day. Now, it was all the butter and cream. It was not the coffee. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, let's ask about that. What exactly is it? I mean, this isn't just the caffeine because that no, would no, take tea No, no, it's not the out. caffeine. Otherwise, cola drinks or tea might and have tea the would same do it benefit. Too. So yeah, what are we so talking about out, here? So it turns out coffee has constituents like a festol, caviol, which in experimental animal studies of liver injury abrogate the liver injury or protect against liver injury. Coffee also has chlorogenic acid, which is one of the richest antioxidants. Coffee is insulin sensitizing, which is why it probably explains why it protects against type 2 diabetes. And a study from Finland, now that I talk about this in lectures and with my colleagues, my colleagues send me more literature. So Martin Abramson, who is at Jocelyn, sent me about a year ago an article that appeared in one of the diabetes journals looking at thousands of patients in Finland, and if they already have type 2 diabetes and drink two cups of coffee a day, it reduces cardiovascular mortality by an astounding 30%. Hey, how about all those crazy coffee enemas? Oh, We've heard about that. those. Yeah, avoid those. Okay. And here's the other thing. Man, you know, avoid we, those. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we've heard about C-reactive protein and tumor necrosis factor alpha, plasma adiponectin, uh, high levels of plasma adiponectin are protective against liver disease. And coffee drinkers have high levels. Coffee drinkers have low levels of C-reactive protein, low levels of tumor necrosis factor alpha. This was a study published last year, Harvard School of Public Health, BI, and Jocelyn colleagues. So some mechanistic explanations. We never, I don't think we'll ever have a randomized control study where we'll take 100,000 subjects and tell 50,000 to drink coffee and 50,000, you're not allowed to drink coffee and follow them for 20 years.
Okay, we have less than one minute. Give us a really short answer. How about wine? A glass or two a day, yes or no? The, the answer is yes. The myth is that it's red wine. It doesn't have to be red wine. Any alcoholic beverage will do it. And periodicity of drinking trumps the amount of drinking. So theoretically and actually practical, it's not practical, but it's better for us to have one or two drinks every day rather than have seven or 14 crammed into Friday and Saturday and Sunday. It's Irish coffee, I told you. Irish coffee is the miracle cure. <laughs> right. Are you getting any impressions of Dr. Greenberg right now? I am. <laughs> All right, thank you. Our guest today has been Dr. Sanjeev Chopra, author of the book, Dr. Chopra Says, Medical Facts and Myths Everyone Should Know, and Faculty Dean of Continuing Education, Harvard Medical School. Dr. Chopra, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Excellent. You know, he really had me hopeful for a second about the caffeine element of this, because once in college, I synthesized pure caffeine, dumped it accidentally all over my hand, watched it seeped in, did not sleep for about two weeks. Really? <laughs> and I thought maybe I'd be protected for life, but it sounds like it won't be. No, it's coffee, man. Starbucks. We're hitting Starbucks right after the show. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> it was a great interview. I wish we could. I mean, we're going to have to have we him We have back. to have him back because There's I have like 60 20... other things. I was going to say 25 million more questions I want to ask him. <laughs> I want to know what's in his medicine cabinet to start. He's got all the nutritional supplements. He knows the whole gamut of stuff. He and Watson can do the show. <laughs> and I think that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Second Opinion Live. Put on the mosquito cologne and catch our next show where the first round of Baby Gaga ice cream is on Michael. Until next time, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. And thanks to Tony, Paula, Alex in the control booth. And remember, if you really have a question about anything medical, call us. We know everything on this show. Thank you for listening, everybody, and join us again on our next show. Just keep listening, because we don't want Watson to take over the show. <laughs> Inevitable. <laughs>